Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They're also helping hospitality professionals connect with each other. Join us on December 17th for a virtual town hall. Meet Chef Jet Tila and ask him questions that directly relate to your business. You'll be able to share your thoughts and to help create a path forward for all of us. Click the link in the show notes to register for this free event. Now here we go. You know, to the extent that you can hire and promote and especially sort of invest in entrepreneurs of color in underserved neighborhoods or who are trying to do something like that is where the real change is going to happen. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post has launched, and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you, people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday, and it's packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, the Pineapple Post is here to help. You can sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you check it out. Can good, nutritious food be reasonably priced? Can it be cheap? Is healthy food a human right? Well, Sam Polk thinks it is, and he's putting his money where his mouth is. Sam created Every Table, a company dedicated to offering nutritious food at a low price point, and he intends to make a profit while doing it. Today, we discuss how Sam is bucking convention and using the big corporation's playbook to make a big impact on local communities. We begin with the inspiration behind the movement he's created. The, the reason I left Wall Street was because I was reading, you know, civil rights stuff at the time and, you know, was so inspired by the freedom riders and, and, and the sort of activists of that time. And, and I was realizing both, you know, that, that those problems that they were sort of agitating against had not been solved or, and were, you know, in, in some ways very much still in effect. And then two, that at that time, there was still plenty of people, you know, trading bonds on Wall Street for Goldman Sachs. And it's not, you know, you know, one thing I've gotten, you know, changed as I've gotten older is I've gotten less judgmental. So it's, you know, there's not anything wrong with trading bonds for Goldman Sachs, as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, it is a choice, you know, about where you're going to spend your life, you know, and I, I, I just wanted to do something that had more impact and had more meaning so that when I was 80, I could, you know, look back and be proud of it. So you left Wall Street, you moved back to Los Angeles. Then what? So then I, I started doing sort of volunteer work and I was working on a book at the time. Um, and I really had no idea what I was going to do. And then, um, you know, my wife and I sat down one weekend and started watching Netflix food documentaries, you know, so we watched Food Inc. and Forks Over Knives. But there was one, a sort of lesser watched one called A Place at the Table uh, by Lori Silverbush, who's amazing filmmaker and also sort of coincidentally um, Tom Colicchio's wife. And it was this argument about basically the intersection of food and poverty. And it was the first time somebody somebody had articulated that to me. And for whatever reason, that just sort of got me on a sort of deep spiritual level, basically, where they were like, 
you know, you know, healthy food should be a human right, not a luxury product. And I started realizing like, you know, it's true. Luxury, you know, healthy food is a luxury product. Like, and I don't wear, you know, Louis Vuitton and, you know, Prada shoes and, you know, but, but basically that's what our, that's what sweet green is in some way, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, and I thought that that, that isn't right. Like it should, you know, there's a few things that should be elemental human rights, you know, shelter, water, um, and then food. What was your relationship like with food prior to seeing the documentary? What was your thought process regarding food? You know, I, 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 I would say that I had sort of like a relatively tortured history with food. And what I mean is, you know, first of all, I grew up in a family where, you know, and God bless my parents who, you know, did their absolute best. I have no doubt about that. But they, you know, they sort of struggled to sort of take care of themselves, let alone their four children. And so it was sort of like a free for all, you know, you know, get what you can, you know, no sort of like nice dinners made at the dinner table and shit like that. So, so I had that. And then I was also like a chubby kid growing up. Um, so I had stress about that. And then I had become a competitive wrestler so much so that like my, I, I had, you know, cut weight and, you know, basically been in eating disorders for years. And then in my adult life, I just sort of like figured it out and was sort of like normalized. And, um, but I also didn't think too much about it. Like I wasn't a particular foodie. So, you know, it's it sort of, you know, it, it's only, I've only understood much later sort of why it is that I got into food, you know. So you watch the documentary and then your perspective changes. And so now you, you get the what, but what was the how? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's funny how little I knew sort of in the beginning. And I didn't, you know, about food, about the food system, about how to start a business. Like, you know, our first idea was, hey, we should bring groceries into underserved neighborhoods. And like, literally, how do I get a, a, a family, a poor family, a bag of groceries? It was like the, the original idea. And I remember calling, you know, my brother knew somebody in the nonprofit space. And so he gave me her phone number and I called her and sort of bless her heart because she literally had you know, my entire future in her hands, even though she didn't know it. And I was like, hey, I've got this idea, you know, what do you think? And instead of saying what she could have said, which is like, you know, you're one of many of these, you know, out of touch white, you know, do-gooders that have no idea what you're doing. She basically said, you know, I think that's a great idea. I think you should follow it, you know, and and here's a, here's a few tips basically. And so mm -hmm. I did, and I started building this nonprofit and, you know, pretty soon I was in South Los Angeles, which is a neighborhood of, you know, per capita income of $13,000 a year running these groups. And, you know, that too sounds like something that has been done before, but, you know, I do feel sort of proud that when we started the nonprofit, which is called Feast, we, you know, understood that the last thing a an underserved neighborhood needs is sort of like didactic lectures from well-meaning white people, basically. And so what we structured was this basically sort of peer-led support group, which took moms who were trying to get themselves and their families healthy amidst a difficult food environment and, and created a safe space for both them to talk about food issues and, and, and definitely to receive some sort of practical information. And there, you know, that's the funny thing about food is that there is practical information that is helpful, things like, you know, nutrition education and cooking skills. 
But when I think about food and sort of my relationship with food, those practical skills are maybe 10% of the sort of issues. And the 90% is all the sort of deep emotional stuff, whether it's you know, culture or family or shame or addiction, all of which can be wrapped up deeply in food, you know? And so that's why we structured it almost like a support group so where people could talk about their own journeys um, and sort of help each other along the process. Because, you know, one, one, one strong belief of mine is that sort of social connections and bonds are almost more important than education in terms of sort of facilitating change and growth. Well, especially when it comes to food, because I, I feel like there are a lot of places, a lot of nonprofits out there that do a great job with supply, but they do a very poor job with demand because demand has to happen in, in an organic way where you are educating whoever your target demographic is in, in a way that they can receive the information. Yeah, I mean, I, I have a I have, I have a lot of sort of thoughts around that, and I think it's really complicated. And what I mean is, I, I do think that there is an element of sort of focusing on demand that's important. And the reason we ended up creating Every Table was this recognition that without the supply, you know, you can't sort of change things. And, and I think the I think the thing that every table realized that a lot of people who start off in the nonprofit world around food access have trouble realizing is that the, one of the issue in sort of food deserts is much less access to produce than it is access to you know, healthy prepared food. And you can think, I don't even know where you live. Well, I do know a little bit about where you live, but I can just, I can, I can tell you immediately that you probably have in your neighborhood, a Trader Joe's, a Whole Foods, a juice shop, a smoothie shop, several salad places, et cetera. And that's the thing for me about it is like in South LA and Watson Compton, there are actually grocery stores. There's less grocery stores per capita, but there's still produce. But the issue is that, you know, most people don't get a big bag of produce at home and be like, mm, great dinner. Let me just <laughs> right. up, da, da, da. It's like, oh, no, let me go get a sweet green salad and let me get a smoothie from Whole Foods and let me get, you know, all of the prepared foods at Whole Foods, which is where they make most of their money because that's what most people buy. Um, and that's the stuff that they don't have in underserved neighborhoods. Well, and before we get into every table, I, I want to continue down this feast road because I think the larger conversation to have revolves around food justice. Can you define that for me as, as what it means to you? Yeah. So, so it, it sort of means a little bit what I was saying earlier, but a little bit deeper, which is that, you know, the idea of food justice is, you know, healthy food is a human right and shouldn't be a luxury product. And yet we have, you know, either intentionally or unwittingly created a world in which a majority of people don't have access to fresh, healthy food on a regular basis. And why is that? You know, and one of the things that I think, you know, every table and, and we have sort of figured out the answer more than most people, um, but it's, it's very complicated. And at a minimum, the answer is because, because the people with capital and power didn't think it was important enough to make happen and understand. Mm-hmm. And so that's the idea is like in the same way that, you know, the civil rights movement was was pushing for for the vote and economic justice. Every table is out there saying it's important to us to make a system where everyone has access to fresh food. 
and we can build it. And so we're going to do that. Let's talk about timing. We're in the middle of a global pandemic. Is now the best time or the worst time to have this conversation? Well, it's, it's actually for sure the best time. I mean, you know, on one level, it's a really interesting time because, you know, what happens when, you know, global stress happens is like, is people go to comfort food. And so, you know, everybody's sort of, you know, a lot of people's eating habits during this time are not in good shape. And you're seeing all the, you know, Domino's stock and McDonald's stock just take off, you know, and they're, they're loving it, right? But the other thing that's happening is that, you know, I think the world is sort of now looking at our food system holistically and saying, okay, we've got some major problems. You know, first of all, you know, this pandemic, and Malcolm Gladwell makes this point really well, this pandemic wouldn't even have been that big of a deal if we had better sort of preventative, you know, health and and a, and a, and a much more wellness-focused world. And, and what I mean is, you know, a large portion of the people that are dying and getting really sick are those who have pre-existing conditions. And probably the number one pre-existing condition in the country is obesity and diabetes and metabolic disease, which are all coming from our food system. So people are clearly looking at this and being like, you know, this hit a, a society that was unwell and that's why it's been so painful. And then two, like, you know, the supply chain disruptions that we saw are sort of getting people freaked out and saying, look, this is, you know, we have this very fragile international food system and actually it makes our country not stable. Um, and so we're going to sort of figure out how to sort of make it more stable. And then on top of that, you know, is this idea that like, all these restaurants are going out of business and nobody is coming back and saying, you know what the world needs now is it really, you know, high, high quality sit down sort of restaurant. Right. And so there's always going to be a massive amount of food entrepreneurship and all those people are looking at new ways of doing this. I'm sold. How do we get there? So every table, I, I do think that every table has figured out the answer more than any other company out there. And I think the reason that we have figured out the answer is that we have sort of diagnosed the, the, the structural problems with more clarity than I've sort of heard elsewhere. And so what I mean is the reason, you know, if, if I asked you, for example, why does a salad cost $15 and a burger and fries cost, you know, $6? Do you know what the answer is? Do I know what the answer is? Yeah. Yeah. For us, it, it came down to the quality of the product and the labor. I, I, what I would sort of argue is that there's there's a couple of things, but that most people sort of think that it is the sort of food costs, but that if you actually went to a grocery store yourself and bought the ingredients for a chicken salad and bought the ingredients for burgers and fries, they're actually not that much different, basically. Mm -hmm. The real sort of cost is what you're talking about, which is basically like the structural inefficiency of restaurant production. Sure. Which is that, you know, basically the largest food companies in the country are CPG companies that make, you know, you know, chips and soda and cereal and fast food companies. And the reason they're the largest food companies in the country is because they have figured out how to sell food at extremely cheap prices, which makes that then attractive to everybody. Right. And the way they have figured out how to do this is basically using the same basic business structure 
each of them, which is basically centralized production and national distribution. So, you know, think about the maker of corn pop cereal. We'll have like a single factory making all the corn pops in the world, incredible economies of scale, incredible efficiencies, probably automated robots, right? And then once those boxes of cereal are made, they're put on trucks or planes and sent all over the country where they then sit on retailer shelves until they're sold. And what makes that entire system work is one crucial thing, non-perishability, right? Mm -hmm. The reason you can do that is because those corn pops can sit on a truck for a week, sit on a retailer shelves for six months and they don't go bad. And that's great for, first of all, the efficiency of production, because then you can produce enormous batches from a single location. And then also it's great for the retailers who don't have inventory waste. They don't have to worry about turning the inventory. They can just keep it. And so if you think about why the center of a grocery store is 80%, you know, shelf-stable food, it's not because people love shelf-stable food. It's because it's cheap and it's good business for the retailer because there's no risk, right? Mm -hmm. Now, fast food is actually the same thing. You know, you think of a fast food place as a restaurant, but it's actually the end of a national supply chain. And that supply chain is all non-perishable. So what that means is, you know, imagine, you know, the, the buns for McDonald's made in a single factory sent all over the country. You know, frozen fries, you know, frozen beef patties, soda, you know, I mean, all of these things that, you know, maybe the iceberg lettuce is perishable. It's why, by the way, pickles are the sort of one of the vegetables on a McDonald's burger. It's like, okay, you've got a vegetable and it's also non-perishable. Perfect, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and so then it gets to the it gets to the fast food place at the end of this national distribution chain, and it's basically microwaved or fried. And then if you think about if you juxtapose those structures and the efficiency of that national distribution chain with a restaurant, you start seeing the problem, which is that like, imagine all the sweet greens in the country, you know, they're, you know, let's say, say you have, let's say you have 20 sweet greens in Los Angeles and, you know, ingredients come in on a train or a truck. And then once they get into the city, they are dispersed to all the different sweet greens. We're at the store level, at the sweet green, at the restaurant level, they're chopped up and processed and sold to customers. And if you start thinking about, a sweet green as a food production facility instead of a restaurant, then you start to get your head around this concept of, okay, well, is that an efficient food production facility? Well, first of all, the rent is higher than you could ever imagine because by by definition, they have to be in a good high rent area. It's mm -hmm. got, a, you know, they, they have 20 different food production facilities around the city that are all have to have their own equipment. They all have to have their own kitchen. They all have to have their own kitchen teams. And so that's why when you look at fast food, you're like, oh, okay, this is why those things are so cheap and, and sweet green is expensive. And the reason for that, as you might guess, is perishability. It's because, you know, restaurants have been designed to make food and then sell it to you right away. Because once you make a restaurant meal, if somebody doesn't eat it within an hour, you're toast. It's over, right? Right. And so what every table is doing is basically saying, look, there's... First of all, there's a huge move in the world away from processed food and fast food. Like the whole world is sort of stopping and saying, we're all sick. This is terrible. It's not going to work anymore. We want fresh, healthy food, which is why, you know, companies like Sweet Green have, are worth $1.6 billion and Carva and all these things. But what nobody has figured out yet is that 
if you want is first of all there is huge demand at a much lower price point for the rest of the world but in order to get it to that price point you have to use the same um theories that the fast food and CPG guys did, which is centralized production and massive distribution. The trick is with um, fresh perishable food, you can't do national distribution. You can't make it a salad in Los Angeles and send it to New York. What you can do is you can do a single kitchen in Los Angeles your own sort of post-production, you know, refrigerated vehicles taking the food to stores, smart fridges, home delivery, and institutional services, which is what we have. And so within a single region, you can get these massive economies of scale. And our vision, for example, for Los Angeles is something like 400 restaurants, 10,000 smart fridges, which are basically healthy vending machines, 100,000 home delivery customers, and 250 institutional services customers. So all of a sudden, then you have a $250, $300 million business in a single city being run off of one kitchen. And Mm -hmm. that's when you get to, oh, okay, now fresh, healthy food is actually cheaper than fast food. And that's going to change the world. What do the price points look like for the consumers? So right now, as you know, we have this variable pricing structure, which says, look, we know that our structure can make a meal of a healthy meal more affordable for everybody. But we also believe that affordability means different things in different neighborhoods. So for example, when we open a store in Brentwood or, or downtown LA, more affluent communities, we'll charge seven or eight bucks, which as you know, is 40 to 50% cheaper than your average fast casual. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then we'll open a store in Compton and South LA and Watts and East LA. And for that same meal, we'll charge five or six bucks. And it's not charity. It's actually, we, we are very profitable in underserved communities, but it is about taking lower gross margin. Now you do have a lower rent load, but it's really lower, lower margin to, to account for the fact that, you know, we need to be competitive. And that's the thing is like, you know, if you're going to be competitive in Compton, you know, and, and people have this misapprehension all the time that they think that people in Compton only like burgers and fries or fried chicken. Well, I'll tell you what, people in Compton only like meals that cost $6, you know? Mm-hmm. And so if you can make a healthy meal for that, then all of a sudden you're in the game. That's amazing. What what has rollout and uh, growth look like for you? Well, we opened our first store in 2016. Um, and that one sort of did really well. And then we opened four more stores the next year and they were all pigs. I mean, oh my God, they were like, you know, we opened one in the Century City Mall, one in Santa Monica, Third Street Promenade, and then one in a, in a food court and then one in this like office park. And we didn't, you know, and this is like the story of my entire career is like, I didn't know anything about food or restaurants and just got, and then we also didn't know about our model yet. So it turns out that, a grab-and-go model shouldn't be in a food court because that doesn't make any sense. There's no convenience. And a grab-and-go model shouldn't be on Third Street Promenade when all you have is tourists who want just a day out in excitement Mm -hmm. and are not looking for a $7 salad, you know? And so, you know, we just got, you know, annihilated and then basically spent the next two years, you know, in this brutal, dark period of trying to figure it out and make it work. And, I mean, you know, for about eight months, we were on the verge of going down for sure. Mm-hmm. And then we sort of started to figure it out and started to sort of make changes, closed a couple of those stores, opened a couple more, and then and spent a huge amount of time. And I think the turning point for us was opening in Compton. And 
you know, basically spending a huge amount of time doing grassroots work in the community and sort of building relationships and networks and then opening this store that just crushed it. And then from then on, we've sort of been hitting it well. And so, you know, we're up to 12 stores now. We've got something like 300 smart fridges, which are basically healthy vending machines out in the field, you know, several thousand home delivery customers and, you know, several hundred sort of institutional service and catering customers. Um, and then we just, you know, close this big round of financing. So next year we'll open probably 30 stores in Los Angeles and, you know, several hundred more healthy vending machines and, you know, tens of thousands of home delivery customers. Um, and then we'll open also our second sort of, you know, full market. Well, and I would assume that your target market has expanded greatly in the pandemic, right? Because there are way more people in need, people that had never been in need before. Well, here's the thing is like, our target market is actually everybody. And that's that's the thing that's so beautiful about our system on some level is that, you know, well, I'll take that back. There's, you know, it may be a while until we open in Pacific Palisades and sort of the most, most affluent who are like, you know, they don't mind paying, you know, $30 for a meal at Erewhon, basically. And that, that part of the market is very well served when it comes to healthy food for $30, you know? Um, but for us, it's really everybody else that is like, you know, not just, you know, underserved neighborhoods, but middle income neighborhoods in the middle of Hollywood is our next door, you know, Studio City, like, there are so many people that want much more high quality food than they've been getting at lower prices, um, period, you know. You also made reference to, to the inefficiencies in the restaurant model pre-pandemic. Have you seen any innovations in the restaurant industry as a result of the pandemic? Well, I mean, it's a, it's a really interesting question. And what I see is, you know, things like ghost kitchens. Um, I just read about this, you know, food moving food truck that's being started by the walmart.com, the jet.com guy, Mark Laurie, like one of the you know biggest and best serial entrepreneurs in the world. But, and, 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 you know, and, 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 and order Mark, I don't know if you've seen order Mark, but I think that's sort of like, mm -hmm. I'm a guy that loves sort of like capacity utilization stories on infrastructure. And I feel like he nailed it in a way where you're like, Hey, why do you even need ghost kitchens if you can do this basically? So there's a lot of interesting stuff going out there, but nobody that I've seen has figured out what I think that we are sort of figuring out, which is this, the, the, that the, you know, as one of my advisors says, like, it's all about price. And so if you can figure, the only way to drive down price significantly is doing this centralized production fixed cost structure with and being very, very smart about the logistics and delivery. And, you know, the food world is big and there's going to be a lot of people winning in it for sure. But all of the innovation, as far as I see, is ha happening at the higher end of the market. Well, in a great crisis, we'll create great opportunities. What opportunities do you see out there for those that are marginalized? Well, I, I tell you sort of like a couple of things. Like one is that I think that this is a sort of moment in time for sort of direct to consumer food businesses that, you know, are now for the first time because of the advent of the internet and apps, et cetera, can circumvent the traditional path through grocery stores and figure out how to sell directly to customers. And so I think that is going to be a big sort of opportunity for 
you know, entrepreneurs from underserved neighborhoods who hadn't had access to that those kind of markets before. That said, they're going to need the logistics. So I think that every table is going to try to help them out. But then the second thing, and this is, you know, as you know, sort of our sort of core underlying business philosophy is about, you know, pushing against structural inequality. And so one of the things that we did is we said, look, you know, in order to get healthy food to a low price, you need scale. And it's people like me who have, you know, a certain background and networks and access to capital that might be the first movers in that. Um, at the same time, you know, for us, ownership really is the sort of end answer, which is like, I sort of look sometimes at the, the $15 minimum wage conversation, which I support and I think is great. But I also think that that doesn't really close the racial wealth gap. What really sort of closes the racial wealth gap is true ownership. And so what we've done is we've set up this social equity franchise model where we've gone to major philanthropic foundations like the Kellogg Foundation, Annenberg Foundation, and California Wellness Foundation, and convinced them basically to give us low interest loans so that we can find talented entrepreneurs from historically marginalized communities who might not have access to capital train them both through in-store and every table university. And when they're ready to own their own store, we then take the funds we've been lent and lend those to them mm -hmm. so that they can build their own every table franchises. And for us, that's sort of like the capstone on the vision, which is like, you know, we do think that we're, you know, building what, you know, we hope ends up as the largest food company in the country. And if we are successful, and by the way, Ray Kroc did a really good job of this too when he was building McDonald's. Like when Ray Kroc started, he focused so much on the uh, success of his franchisees that many of them were, you know, making four or five times what he was in the beginning and, you know, living in better neighborhoods than he was. And that's sort of our dream on some sense, which is like, if we are able to realize this dream of, you know, becoming the largest food company in the country, it will be in partnership with thousands, if not tens of thousands of entrepreneurs of color from underserved communities who own their own every table stores. And to me, that is sort of our answer to, you know, how can we help provide opportunity to folks that really need it? When it brings up an interesting point, I was talking with a friend recently and he was like, you know, I really want to make an impact. I want to start a nonprofit. And I asked, I said, what, what, why a nonprofit? And he goes, well, you know, I want to have a big impact. And I said, well, you don't think that making a lot of money would, would help you make an impact? Um, and, and I know that, that you have an aligned vision, that you see the value in having a for-profit company focused on good work. Can you talk about why you chose to go the for-profit model and the benefits that you see in it? Yeah. Um, so, and I do think that what you're talking about is like, is a crucial shift that is yeah. and needs to happen in the sort of philanthropic and, and do good world because, you know, to, to most people, they're synonymous. Like I want to do good. So I'm going to start a nonprofit, mm -hmm. but nonprofit is basically just a tax code and a tax structure. And the reality of it is, is that the nonprofit model is almost inherently non-scalable because you are fundraising for your entire revenue every year. And it's like, you know, as you know, it's hard enough to focus on one, on meeting the needs of one group of people, which is your customers. Now for a nonprofit, 
your real customers are your funders because if they're not happy, you're dead. Mm -hmm. And so most of your attention is on them and second on the sort of people you're trying to help. And then, you know, one of the things, you know, if you, if you spend uh, enough time about around rich people, you'll come to understand that, you know, and first of all, you know, very generous, you know, I've been around some incredible, but also, you know, uh, people of, of a certain whim, you know, and so one year they're focused on this and then the next year they're focused on something totally different. And, you know, all of a sudden that can mean sort of lights out for your business. So for me, we wanted to, we wanted to build a business that was based on basically customer support as opposed to donor support, because in the end, you know, there's something that, you know, you know, a, a lot of people, especially on the left, these, you know, these days, they really don't like businesses but, you know, and I'm a, I'm a solid lefty, you know, progressive, but I, I love businesses because at the end of the day, like you are meeting the needs of people and that determines whether you're successful or not. And so that's why we chose to do business, which is like, you know, the last thing that people in underserved neighborhoods need is another charity. What they need is respect and, you know, uh, partnership. And that's what we tried to build. It's an industry podcast, and the people listening are passionate about food, and they're passionate about people. Uh, at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to talk directly to the audience. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice you'd like to share? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a particular moment in time, and there is, you know, there there has been so much pain that has caused it, whether it's George Floyd or you know, the numerous other sort of things that led to the creation of Black Lives Matter. But it it is also this sort of like beautiful moment of opportunity where all of a sudden, and you've probably noticed this too, is like the commercials you see on TV have, you know, black leads and, you know, you know, there's, there's, you know, you know, African-American, you know, politicians sort of rising quickly. And, and it, it's almost bizarre to have an all white movie right now. And so we're living in a time, I think, of, of profound, profound change. Um, but where we need to see more of that is in the restaurant community and in specifically around ownership. And so what I would sort of say is like, you know, to the extent that you can hire and promote and especially sort of invest in entrepreneurs of color in underserved neighborhoods or who are trying to do something like that is where the real change is going to happen. And it's starting to. And I think that, you know, if this moment is seized, then, you know, 20 or 30 years from now, we're going to be living in a completely different world. That's Sam Polk. For more on Every Table and their mission, go to everytable.com. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.